Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I am joined by two of my stellar guests today to talk about the rider market in MotoGP and World Superbike ahead of the start of the MotoGP season in July. There's been a few interesting movements and developments and in some cases it's been quite interesting at the lack of movement and official confirmation. We'll talk about that a little bit more in this show. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by two of uh, our normal guests today. Mr. David Emmett is here with us. Hello, David. Neil, I hope you are doing well in that there, Barcelona. Not too bad. Sweating profusely, I must say. Summer heat and humidity has really taken hold. A man who doesn't look like he's sweating, sporting a pretty rugged looking jumper. Uh, clearly, this summer is uh, in full flow in Dundalk, Ireland. Stephen English, how are you doing, sir? Not so bad, Neil. I've got my Aaron sweater on just to make sure I'm nice and warm all the way through the summer. You know, it got into double figures at one stage here. It's been a, an absolutely fantastic summer. Stop it. You're making me very jealous here. Now, lads, we've got quite a bit to talk about um, because, uh, well, I think uh, since we last broached the uh, the riders market uh, on this podcast, there's been uh, obviously quite a bit of uh, movement with regards to uh, KTM. We're still seeking answers but what's happening with Valentino Rossi and Andrea De Vizioso. And then, of course, uh, news earlier this week that Michael Vandermark and World Superbike will be leaving Yamaha at the end of this year. Uh, all of these things uh, are of great interest to us. We'll be uh, covering all of them. But let's start first and foremost with KTM. They have announced that they will have uh, four riders, obviously, in uh, 2021. And Danilo Petrucci will be joining the Austrian factory from Ducati. And uh, in something of a surprise move, it will be Miguel Oliveira who will be joining Brad Binder in the factory squad, while Petrucci slots into Tectois alongside Ico Lecoona. So uh, some interesting movements right there, Dave. Did this news come as a surprise to you? Uh, I mean, that Petrucci would go to KTM didn't really come uh, as a surprise. Obviously, well, I think we talked about this before. He visited the KTM factory, you know, was very enthusiastic afterwards, um, uh, seemed very keen. Um, we all thought he was going to, I mean, like, we all thought he was going to KTM. Obviously, there is also this uh, complication row who's not allowed to talk about what he's doing, even though KTM have acknowledged that he's leaving at the end of um, this, uh, or he'll be leaving uh, at the end of this year but I mean yeah we all thought that he would just sl slot in taking uh, Paul Espargaro's uh, place but he doesn't he's off to the uh, Tech 3 the satellite team but I'm not sure it's actually um, a good way to look at Tech 3 because Tech 3 are sort of very much a I mean one of the things in the press release was also they mentioned that everyone would be on the same bikes so there'll be four riders on the same bikes you'll have Miguel uh, Oliveira and Brad Binder in the factory team Danilo Petrucci and Ica in, the, uh, in, in Tech 3 but they'll all be on you know the same spec factory bike um which is a good thing. It means everyone's on the same bike. Everyone has comparable feedback. It makes developing much, much uh, easier. Also, just even practical things like support. I mean, you know, you don't have to make, uh, you don't have to keep on making parts, uh, two lots of parts for two different uh, uh, spec of bikes. So, um, um, yeah. And it's also exactly the place where KTM are in their program at the moment, which is waiting to make the next step to being properly competitive in the sense of, you know, battling for the podium week in, week out. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was a, a little bit of a surprise, also a little bit of a surprise for Petrucci to accept something like that, to say yes to uh, what is in... Um, 
well, in theory, at least, a demotion to go from a factory team to a uh, to, uh, to to a satellite team. But um, I think our uh, friend and colleague uh, Peter McLaren has been speaking to Hervé Pontaral, and Hervé Pontaral has been um, uh, emphasising that you know you know a factory team and a satellite team. This really is that they're not a junior team; they are uh, you know a support team. They're an extra team. They are. Two extra factory seats in a separate uh, in a separate team, and obviously, like the focus is going to be on the factory squad, um, but uh, there will still be a really good environment for Petrucci with a lot of support and a competitive material. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a um, it, it's going to be. It's a, and it's definitely an interesting move, and also I suspect that um, uh, Petrucci is going to be on pretty much the same money in the Tech Three squad as he was in Ducati and the, in the Factory Ducati team because he wasn't getting paid very much in the uh, uh, by the Factory Ducati team, uh, and um, you know KTM are going to be paying his wages, and they have a certain amount of money floating around, so I don't think uh, I don't think that's going to be a problem for them for matching that. So, I mean, uh, apart from sort of a theoretical backing of extra support uh i don't think petrucci comes out of it too badly um steve when jack miller was promoted to uh, the ducati factory team i mean we we sort of speculated and heard from from various people that uh, petrucci had some options uh to remain in moto gp principally aprilia and uh, and ktm and then also the the world superbike option with ducati uh was a p- potential option as well um do you think he comes out of this uh, well, um, you know, considering some of the things that David said? Well, I think the one thing that needs to be said about Petrucci is, like David, you say whether or not he'd want to take the step down to what is effectively the satellite KTM, regardless of whether the machinery is the same. But you also have to look at it and say, does Petrucci deserve to be a full factory, full-fledged rider? And, you know, he's a very good rider. He's maximized everything he can. He's a tremendously hard-working rider, but he's at the, he's at the limit of how good he can be potentially and you look at KTM they've got Miguel Oliveira who's at the start of his career he's won a lot of Grand Prix for KTM in the in the lower classes and I think that you know Petrucci has a chance to stay in the MotoGP grid has a chance to stay on a good bike has a chance to still earn good money and I think he should I, I, I think I think he's fallen into the right position for him as well I think MotoGP at the minute has is filled with so many incredibly talented riders that teams have to be on the on the look for a young rider a talent that they can come through KTM have done that with Binder and Oliveira and I think you know into his third year Oliveira deserves a chance to be on the factory bike and Petrucci deserves a spot in the grid and deserves a good bike on the grid but I think he's found his his natural natural sort of level within the Grand Prix field and there's no there's no shame in that at the end of the day the three races last year that stand out the most for Petrucci are Le Mans Mugello and Catalonia in consecutive rounds where he was on the podium each week and, and looked tremendous but he never lived back up to that billing again that's true um, if we think of a, a normal season happening in 2021 and we we all cross our fingers that that will happen and we get to, to that run that Steve's just mentioned of the, the races in France, Italy and then Barcelona and Petrucci is the man who's uh, scoring KTM's best results. Is that something that that will reflect well on the factory, David? Is that um, is that something that Pip Barra, Motorsport Director, will, uh, will be pleased about? I don't. 
I, I honestly don't think they'd care. I, I, I you know, I, I think they would be delighted. Um, uh, you know, if they don't care who gets on the podium, as long as one of the bikes gets on the podium, that's where they are right now. I mean, you know, they need to be. Uh, uh, I think at the start of the, year, the the project, they talk about it being a five, a, a sort of like a five year project to success, winning races in, within within five years. I think after the first couple of seasons, they had to accept that that was a little bit ambitious, and um, that it might take sort of you know between five and seven years for them to start uh, winning races. Um, so 2021 will be. Uh, uh, let me let me see. That'll be their. I think their fifth. That'll be their fifth season in uh, in MotoGP. Uh, and if they need to be on the podium, you know, in 2021 they need to be scoring podiums. And whether it's Petrucci doing it, whether it's Binder, uh, Lecuona, Oliveira, they really don't care. They just want to be uh, scoring scoring podiums. Um, and if I could throw this back to you, Neil, because I mean, obviously, uh, for the past few years, you've been really concentrated and sort of uh, you've, you've you've really focused on on Moto Two. So you know Binder and Oliveira probably better than than either Steve or I do. What do you think? I mean, would you give Oliveira the shout over Petrucci? I mean, and between Binder and Oliveira, who do you reckon would be the rider that you can have? Um, yeah, it's a good question, Div. Um, I would say maybe Oliveira's ceiling is a little higher than Petrucci's, but I think at the moment and in, in 2021, I think Petrucci's going to be a more rounded uh, competitor, uh, especially uh, especially at uh, you know nine, ten tracks in a year, um, and therefore that that's why I find it a little surprising that he's gone to, to Tectois. But I do think. Um, Oliveira is one of the smartest guys going, um, and is pretty adept at, uh, riding around, um, issues with the machine. Um, and I think, uh, alongside Binder, they've proven in the past just how effective a team they can be from their days with, uh, Akiyo's Moto 2 and Moto 3 teams. Um, and they've also proved that they can be highly competitive against one another but also harmonious uh, in both 2015 when Oliveira was fighting Danny Ken for the Moto3 championship then in 2018 when Oliveira was fighting Peko Banyaya for the Moto2 championship uh, by the end of those seasons Binder was uh, basically at a point where he was he was fighting for, for podiums and for race wins and there were occasions where he had the potential to, f- to finish ahead of Oliveira yet uh, knew the situation and uh, knew how him finishing in front of uh, the Portuguese rider could affect the team and basically their chances of winning the world championship and uh, did the right thing in the team's view and didn't, um, you know, didn't overtake them. So I think they've proven that, um, you know, it's not all about them whenever they're riding together. And, um, you know, KTM sort of prides itself on taking people, taking riders from the very bottom rung of the kind of ladder, if you like, and making them... Uh, you know, promote them, promoting them all the way to the top, and uh, definitely makes sense in that regard. Um, but um, but how would you rate um, the kind of the combination of uh, of Binder and Oliveira, Steve? I mean, is that uh, is that something you think can um, strike fear into KTM's rivals in the year to come? Is that something we're likely to see a partnership, maybe for four or five, maybe even six years in the future? Well, I think if you look at uh, Binder in particular, he's had races where he's come through from the back of a Grand Prix field to be able to win or finish on the podium. So I think he's a a great, exciting prospect for KTM. 
I think uh, Oliveira has always taken time to learn a class. If you look at the one two fives, Moto three, Moto two, he always built himself up all the way through his career, and then suddenly he beat right at the front, and he was able to win twelve or thirteen races in the in the smaller classes. He was able to finish second in both championships, but it was always from a position of using his early years as a foundation. So you'd expect this year to be a bit like that for Oliveira again, where he gets a little bit a little bit better. Like at the end of the day, Oliveira's performances last year as a whole, they weren't what really made you jump off your seat to to shout for Oliveira because he was just getting good, solid results. But a lot of that comes down to the KTM as well. And I think with another year, he can really make a big step forward. And I think he's got that potential to make a step. Whereas I just think whenever you look at Petrucci as, as, the, as the example of who they could have hired into that factory seat, I don't see Petrucci suddenly making a massive step forward considering he's leaving what's been arguably the best bike on the grid and he's only been able to win once and you know a few podiums with the bike last year. So I think as good as Petrucci has done in terms of getting the most out of himself, I think he's just at that at that limit now. I've got a question for you, Steve, because obviously the uh, the alternative um, for Petrucci, if he hadn't have gone to KTM, I mean, this talk maybe he could have gone to, to Aprilia, but Aprilia is complicated because of the situation with Ian Oney. Um, uh, the alternative was a World Superbike ride with Ducati. Um, are you sort of sorry to have lost Petrucci from World Superbikes, how do you think he would have done in World Superbikes? Well, I think Petrucci would have been a great rider to have back in the Superbike paddock. Obviously, he came from that paddock in the stock classes. And I think it would have been great for the championship if he had to come back. He's got a big following. As, as I said, like he's a very talented rider. He works very hard. He deserves his place on the MotoGP grid. And he would 100% deserve his place on a good world superbike ride i think he would have gone there he would have won races and he would have he would have done a good job but he's also going to be able to go there in a couple of years time you know he can, he has this chance he's only 29 so he has another couple of years left in MotoGP. if he's able to make a, a real run at the ktm and uh, have a lot of success he can stay in MotoGP after that otherwise you go to world superbikes as a 31 year old rider you've still got plenty of years left to be able to try and win a world championship so for Petrucci I think it just made perfect sense to take the KTM offer because as an Italian rider as well it's left Ducati with good relationships there he's always going to have that door open to him. Dave, I want to ask you about um, Oliveira's signing. Now, obviously, we've mentioned a little bit that uh, it makes sense from KTM's point of view in that they have two young promising riders. They've both Binder and Oliveira have ridden in the same team together before. Um, but there's been hints here and there that uh, had Oliveira not been promoted from Tech 3 to the factory team next year, that uh, he might have been assessing options elsewhere. Um, does, did that play a part in him being promoted to the factory team and Petrucci going to Tech 3? Well, uh, uh, again, uh, our colleague Simon Patterson wrote an interesting story about why, uh, sort of explaining a little bit how this came around, which was that um, it sort of, you know, it all starts with Joanne Zarco. The, the fact that Zarco left his contract early, it made things very complicated. First of all, uh, Miguel Oliveira was offered that seat for 2020, but he turned it down saying, no, no, I want another year in a satellite team. Uh, but after that, I want to be promoted to the, to the fact. And then when they gave the seat to Brad Bender, I think that sort of quite, that, that annoyed, uh, uh, Oliveira because, well, you know, 
that's a, a proper rider's ego thing. He didn't realise that they were going to actually send it, uh, give it to Brad Binder. He was expecting to see Brad Binder a year later. Um, and so basically he had a sort of more or less a guarantee of that meant that they didn't really have a, a, a lot of options. You know, Katie didn't really have a lot of options for, for uh, to do anything, but they do. And then sort of moving Binder down from, tech, from the factory team to Tech 3, to make for room for Petrucci would have been, uh, yeah, that would have been a, a blow as well. And I think they would have risked losing either Oliveira or Binder if they had done anything else. Uh, you know, these are young up-and-coming riders with a lot of potential and you know, highly, uh, they're desirable riders. They're riders that other factories would be very happy to sign. Um, and so they're perfectly happy to let... Um, uh, so KTM really don't want to be letting them go to to other factories, and you know Petrucci is not in the same does not have the same sort of strength of bargaining position that uh, Oliveira and Binder had. Yeah, Dave, how important do you do you think it is for KTM to be able to show, like as Neil said earlier on, just that staircase that they can have all the way through the classes from the Red Bull rookies all the way through to the MotoGP field? Like obviously for Oliveira and Binder, they're two riders that have come through with KTM. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's an excellent point. It really is. Um, uh, again, the whole point uh, about this is, and the way that, that KTM have worked, because they've come through from you know uh, from Red Bull rookies all the way through, um, and they've been KTM riders pretty much uh, for uh, all, if not most of their, or most if not all of their careers. Um, so yeah, it, it is important. And if you get to the position where you are nearly at the top and um then you get pushed aside by ktm then that would uh, that would create a little bit of doubt amongst um for young riders uh who are you know looking at signing for ktm sort of for the motor three grand prix championship or perhaps even uh lower perhaps even the uh, the the fim uh, cv uh, championship the spanish championship these are the places this is where you are trying to recruit the um the best talent available in the hope that you can sort of bring them through all the way through to to, to MoGP in the highest levels and so uh, it's a very persuasive argument to say look we've got this route to MoGP but if you say look we've got this route to MoGP um uh but we're willing to bring in riders to displace you then it really weakens that argument i think and neil just a question for you because obviously in your job looking after the Moto3 and Moto2 field, you tend to see an awful lot, but um, how important do you think it is for a Moto2 rider to see that KTM will take a rider from the class, put them on a factory bike, in the case of Binder, or give them the chance on a satellite bike, like they did with Oliveira, just to be able to to give those young riders, and there's a lot of talented riders coming through at the minute, that it gives them that opportunity, it gives them the hope that uh, that can be a chance for them. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's uh, it's definitely pretty important for them. You look at KTM across all disciplines, and um, you know placing uh, its trust in extremely young, talented uh, competitors uh, is certainly one of their one of their trademarks, one of their calling cards. Um, and uh, yeah, I think um, you look at uh, any Moto Two rider that could uh, potentially have eyes on a. a, a you know, a KTM seat in the next couple of years, they'll see that there is that uh, that chance to to be promoted through the ranks. 
Um, I also think it says quite a lot about, um, you know, pushing Oliveira up. He is going to be going into the factory team next year with basically one and a half seasons of, uh, of MotoGP experience. Um, and whenever some of the names that were being floated as possible successors to Paul Espargaro in the factory KTM squad, I mean, you're looking at pretty experienced names. Um, I mean, I think Andrea De Vizioso was uh, was potentially a name that they were looking at. Um, maybe even someone like Cal Crutchlow as well. Um, and I think it shows that they've gone for Oliveira, the trust that they have in test rider Danny Pedrosa, because Pedrosa has that experience and he is providing that direction in the testing team. And therefore, he's providing a platform from which younger riders can kind of operate without that massive pressure of, you know, being the figurehead of development. Um, so I think uh, Pedroza in the test team has really um, allowed them to, to maybe make this decision as well. Yeah, I completely agree. I was, just, I was going, to make, going to make exactly the same point. This is one of the things that I find that I like about this and find most interesting is it's uh, you can see that they've taken like an almost uh, a holistic approach to it sort of um, they've got a really good test rider in any sort of test and development program you get it's not that you know you get new parts you might get sort of you know a, a new swing arm and a, a new swing arm pivot and uh, um, maybe new triple clamps or something um, and you try the new swing arm and it doesn't work and then you try the new swing arm and the uh, new triple clamps and it works really well and then you try the swing arm and the triple clamps and the and the pivot uh, uh, and it doesn't work at all uh, that is very time consuming actually figuring out the correct a combination of parts which actually makes an improvement and uh, this is one of the things where Pedrosa has been absolutely key in figuring out the packages in creating packages of parts to give to the factory riders mostly Polis Bargaro last year obviously um, uh, just to sort of you know go ride and uh, to give him an idea you know to, to, to search for a real improvements so that then like the factory riders just have to say yes this is better or no this isn't or it, it's all right or it's not good enough whatever so Danny Pedrosa is absolutely key in a part of this and it does mean that having that sort of level of test rider means that you can take a risk or take a bit of a gamble on less experienced riders rather than doing everything you can to sign a rider like Dovizioso or uh, or Crutchlow uh, or when you do sign a rider uh, as experienced as uh, Petrucci, for example, um, not having to worry about putting him uh, putting him in, in Tech Three. I don't think Dovichius, whoever it was, ever a well. I, I mean, he was a serious candidate for KTM, but I don't think he was ever serious about leaving uh, uh, leaving Ducati. I don't think um, he wants. The only reason he's still racing is because he wants to win a championship, and the only way that you stay that you win a championship is by staying with the same manufacturer who is building a competitive bike and, and, and sort of learning to master that. And I think switching to KTM wouldn't have given him a better chance of winning the championship. So I, you know, I think uh, Dovizioso either stays at Ducati or he or he retires. Um, but uh, that would have left only Cal Crutchlow potentially. Um, but Cal Crutchlow probably would have been expensive because Cal Crutchlow is also looking at retiring and wants um, to uh, fill his piggy bank before he uh, stops. And that's a beautiful segue, Dave, into uh, the next topic because, uh, well, Andrea Vizioso has been in the news quite a lot in the last fortnight. Now, Steve, uh, imagine that, uh, well, 
you have to basically muscle a 260 horsepower MotoGP machine around Jerez tight and twisty 13 corners in the middle of the Andalusian summer. It sounds pretty daunting, but then you have to do it with a recently broken left collarbone. Uh, we've heard that Davizioso did this uh, when basically uh, taking part in uh, an Italian motocross race on Sunday. And, uh, well, we've already seen photos of videos of him actually training in the gym today uh, to show that uh, his movement hasn't been completely affected in a bad way. But uh, what are your thoughts on uh, Davizioso's injury and its, uh, its possible implications for his championship? Well, it's one of those strange ones where a rider says that they need to do X, Y, Z. Do you let them do it? Davi said that he needed to race this motocross race to get the feeling of competition, the adrenaline, all those things back, just to get himself sharp for Hareth. Ducati agreed to it, so there was clearly merit to, to Davi making the request. But on Davi's side, you have to make sure that you get through it. You'd have to make sure that you're able to get yourself sharp for racing and racing in the championship that you're actually competing in. And for Davi, it's going to be tough at Hareth. It's going to be, as you said, Neil, very hot. It's going to be... It's going to be a very strange weekend for everyone to begin with, and then if you're carrying an injury, it's going to be it's going to be even worse. But I think for Davi, he now really needs to just grit it out at Hareth and just get a good result, and he really has to hope that he's still able to sign a signature with a broken collarbone. <laughs> yeah, is he left-handed? I don't think he is. I think he's right-handed, right? Oh, well, then he's fine. He's got nothing to worry about. Yeah, and also, also worth pointing out that Jerez is right. Is you know, it's all right-handers. The braking is all either in a straight line or for right-hander. So um, there are much worse tracks to be breaking your left collarbone on. Um, it sounds like it was a very clean break. Also, the way that they described the the surgery, the fact that they've been able to sort of basically put the bone back together without it uh, without it um, uh, changing shape or length means that it was a fairly clean break and uh, and they could fix it. So it should be fine. And then you know I, I remember this fellow back in 2013 breaking his uh, collarbone on the Thursday and racing on the Saturday. So um, after flying back backwards and forwards to uh, 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 to Barcelona to have a plate put on. So a broken collarbone is not bad, uh, but it's not that bad. Um, but this is one of those things where we're, you know, where everyone's going, should he have done it? Should he be racing uh, 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 motocross? And it's easy to say now before we've even started and just a couple of days after he's broken his, uh, his collarbone, uh, he should never have done it. But really, I mean, we will know uh, after the last race in Valencia or wherever that happens to, uh, that happens to be. If uh, Dovizioso, you know, does absolutely miserably in the first two races in uh, Jerez and loses the championship, then all will be said, oh, it was a terrible decision. But if he goes on to win the championship or, or whatever, then um, we will all have completely forgotten about it. So um, uh, I don't think it makes a lot of difference. Well, Dave, you mentioned Lorenzo back in 2013. It didn't end too well for Lorenzo that year. He might have come back, but the the mental anguish that he put himself through, he was still feeling the effects of that a year later. He was still feeling drained from forcing himself to 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 get back in action as soon as he did. Well, yeah, I mean, it didn't help that he broke his uh, that he rebroke the same collarbone again two weeks later at the Saxon Ring, which I think you know we, that's the one thing that everyone forgets that he uh, he dinged himself up him, and then two weeks later he fell off at turn eleven at, uh, at the Saxon Ring and bent the um, 
he crashed so hard that he bent the bone, so or he bent the plate which was holding his uh, his bone together. So um, that would have been a very bad and very painful um, uh, injury, and was forced to you know was was forced to, to have another operation. So yeah, there was there was a, a lot about that. So much happens during the season. There's usually lots of other things which have a much bigger impact that end up having a much bigger impact. Yeah, and I think whenever you look at how most riders train, whether it's motocross, whether it's flat track, whether it's mountain biking, whether it's it's anything, it's all fast, it's all dangerous, it's all where you could get yourself hurt. Now, Dovey's unfortunate that his training incident happened in a championship race that he wasn't involved in, but you know he, he did get injured, and uh, now it's up to him to make sure that it doesn't have an impact on his season. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's typical of David Emmett stirring the hornet's nest. He can't mention Andrea De Vizioso for two seconds without mentioning his teammate from 2017 and 18 as well, Jorge Lorenzo. And that brings us on uh, neatly to uh, the future of uh, Ducati factory team. The, uh, the lead seat in that team is yet to be uh, confirmed for 2021. And, uh, well, I mean, Ducati have gone on record and said that Davizioso is their first pretty much mostly their only option. Uh, Davizioso said that um, he has no intention to retire. He said that in an interview recently. Uh, I think it was with uh, Sky Sports Italia. Um, and uh, from what we believe, it's uh, purely financial Um Basically, this uh, this stalling and uh, this lack of signing. Uh, what's going on, Div? And um, well, I have to get this in there. Is Jorge Lorenzo going to be on the grid next year? Uh, well, first of all, what's going on is uh, as um, uh, as you said, Neil. It's just financial, but it's not just financial for next year. It's also financial for this year. Um, so, because of the uh, pandemic. Um, that's had a major economic impact on uh, Ducati, and also I wonder. I also wonder if it's having an effect on the Philip Morris uh, sponsorship as well, because obviously links to uh, between uh, smoking and very serious outcomes for the uh, for the pandemic. There, I think, uh, uh, like being a smoker was generally um, uh, really bad if you caught co- if you caught the COVID, because it generally meant that you were um, uh, very likely to die. It increased your uh, your your likelihood of uh, of death, and so it makes you. Want whether Philip Morris have also reduced the budget. I've got no idea. I haven't spoken to anyone, but you'd have to think that that's got going to impact their business as well. Um, uh, Ducati, certainly, you know, they haven't been able to sell all of the bike manufacturers. <clears throat> so they don't have the same amount of money because their sales basically stopped for sort of three or four months. Um, now, they might sort of catch up a little bit, but they're not going to make uh, make good uh, a lot of the money they've lost. So Ducati are looking to save money. They want to save money for next year, so they're not offering uh Dovicioso as much as they were um for uh, uh as he was supposed to be getting as he got last year and he was supposed to be getting this year but they also want to cut his wage for this year and i can imagine that that um his manager and Dovicioso are not loving that idea um so that's something they've got to sort out between themselves I still think that basically Dovizioso, well, Dovizioso is Ducati's best option and uh, Ducati is Dovizioso's probably only realistic option if he wants to win a championship. Um, if they don't reach an agreement, which I think is unlikely but could happen, um, could we see Jorge Lorenzo? I am completely unconvinced. It's true that Lorenzo is available 
um, because he was supposed to be uh, a Yamaha test rider, but it also looks like because of the changes for uh, 2020 and 2021, uh, there are no, there'll be no uh, engine changes. The Yamaha look to be uh, uh, sort of, uh, well, they won't be. They won't have a European test team for this year, and they may not have a European test team for next year either. Um, so there wouldn't really be much of a role for uh, Lorenzo, which would leave him at a loose end. But I have to say, I mean, Lorenzo looks perfectly happy in retirement. He does not look like someone who is um, giving everything to be in shape for a proper full Grand Prix season. I think he would love to race um, wild cards if he could, uh, but I can't see him actually uh, competing for a championship. Uh, I don't think... and if he was going to come back, I would see him much more likely to come back on a Yamaha because he loved the Yamaha and he knew how to, he felt comfortable on the Yamaha and he felt um, that he understood it. He was never really comfortable on the Ducati, even though he became extremely competitive on the bike. Uh, but he never really felt comfortable. It never really suited him. He had to force his style. He had to force himself to adapt his style to it. Whereas with the Yamaha, it was just you know he could um, he could ride it sort of you know with, with, with his eyes closed almost. He'd have a much better chance of it being um, uh, of him being competitive. I think if uh, Maverick Vinales decided he was going to go off and grow olives in the south of France, then um, uh, uh, and Yamaha offered Lorenzo that seat, then he would jump at it. But um, uh, Ducati, I'm not quite uh, I'm not quite so sure. And he doesn't need you know he doesn't need to do it for the money. He made. Um, a lot of money at uh, the last time he was at Ducati. Um, he wouldn't get paid what Dovizioso was going to get. He was going to get paid. So yeah, no, I I I, I remain skeptical, which probably means that uh, by the time you're listening to this, uh, there will be an announcement that he's already signed it, all the rest of it. Steve, how do you see it? Um, do you think you know having uh, having observed Jorge Lorenzo's career and then maybe watched his activity from uh, Valencia last year? Do you think he's a uh, He's really in a position um, mentally and physically to, to come back and make a make a return should Ducati and Davizioso not come to some sort of agreement. I think whenever you look at Lorenzo, it's easy to it's easy to forget how great he was on the Yamaha, and it's easy to just remember a handful of races where he was very competitive on the Ducati. And I think that Lorenzo in all likelihood, as David said, would really want to come back on a Yamaha because he knows it would suit him. I think that if I'm Ducati and I'm given an option between pay Davizioso or have Lorenzo on the bike, I'm still going to say that Davi gives you the best option to be able to challenge for a championship, so pay the man. Um, I think that Jorge just got to the end of his end of his career and injuries took their toll. And I think it will take a lot for him to come back for a full season. I think we'll see him on the grid next year but it'll only be as a wild card. You'd imagine that wherever Lorenzo decides to go, if we're able to have wild cards next year, that uh, he's going to get a ride there. And, you know, as David said, you mightn't have a Yamaha test team in Europe for next season, but uh, you're still going to have a spare M1 sitting around somewhere to be able to put Lorenzo on it, to be able to get some good data. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. 
Div? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, I don't see Lorenzo being a Ducati um, uh, test rider because the Perro has proved to be extremely good at um, uh, at getting the the, uh, the the GP, well, by now the GP20, uh, getting the Desmo Sedici uh, uh, competitive, making it competitive. Uh, he's proved that he can do it. He's still fast enough to be a really good test rider. Um, so there's no room for Lorenzo there as a test rider. Um, uh, so he couldn't certainly couldn't do West, wild cards for, for Ducati. If he was going to do wild cards, it could only be as Yamaha. Um, and I don't think Yamaha would give him a wild card unless uh, they'd sort of seen him on the bike uh, a couple of times at a test. So, yeah, I think there's lots of things which all have for a full-time return. I remain sceptical. Okay. Yes, I think uh, I, I would uh, fall into that category as well, Div. Um, I think the last year, Lorenzo's career at Honda, um, I think it, it proved it was just one challenge too far. And obviously he had some, some massive knocks and crashes, which, uh, which you know, dramatically altered the course of his season. But um, yeah, I think going back to Ducati, where it isn't a perfect fit, that would require another huge undertaking from his part. Um, and I think at this stage of his career, I think it's, it's, it's maybe beyond, beyond Jorge, especially when you look at his Instagram and just, uh, as you mentioned, how, how content he seems to be. Um, you know, nice cars and jackets, uh, are the kind of the, the order of the day. Um, and there's not really too many of those, uh, gym shots that he used to, he used to post throughout his career. So, um, yeah, I would say it's, uh, well, Jorge is still some way off that. But anyway, switching attentions to, sorry, Div. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it is true that uh, the cars and jackets that he's posting pictures of are um, uh, not quite. Uh, they're not exactly Skodas and uh, CNA, are they? Uh, so they are. They, he would require a certain amount of budget for. Them. Would hope that he had plenty of money um, uh, set aside, and uh, given that he lives in a. Uh, peculiar part of switzerland with a um, switzerland with its own unique tax code um then you would think that he'd have, he would have the spare cash to be able to pay that but yeah the only reason to actually do it is would be to come back uh, and earn a lot of money racing um but there aren't any factories who'd be prepared to, uh, be prepared to pay him a lot of money to race at the moment in part because of the pandemic nobody has a lot of money yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, switching attentions to Ward Yamaha. And before we go to, uh, to World Superbike, just at the moment, Steve, we're still waiting confirmation on Valentino Rossi and his 2021 plans. Um, well, what's your, what's your view on that situation? Um, we're, we're led to believe that it will be a Valentino Rossi, Franco Morbidelli partnership in the Petronas SRT Yamaha satellite team. Um, but we still haven't heard a full confirmation yet. We expected to do so roundabout now um what, what do you think is going on there i mean it to me it's just about um if you like i mean it, it's gonna a lot of it's gonna be about his crew all of a sudden valentino rossi is a very different uh, uh negotiating position every time rossi has moved he's always been able to take uh his crew with him um but not just his crew also all sorts of uh 
other members of his entourage, uh, friends, assistants, uh, colleagues, uh, masseurs, physiotherapists, managers, and God knows what else. And all of those ended up buying, uh, being paid by the factory that he moved to. That happened when he left Honda. When he went uh, left Honda to, for Yamaha, he took his crew with him. Uh, when he left uh, Yamaha for Ducati, he took his crew with him and a very large number of people. Uh, when he came to Yamaha, he bought his crew with him again, but he was allowed to, take, to bring fewer people back. Uh, now, uh, I, I mean, the number I heard um, was uh, 20 people. He wants to take 20 people to Petronas. And I, uh, 20 people in a satellite team is a lot of people. That's uh, That really is, it, it's a large amount of people. It's understandable that he'd want to bring his crew with him. Uh, but the problem is, if Rossi comes, it'll only be for maybe one or two years. And I had this conversation with uh, Hervé Ponchard when... Um, Mark Marquez was going to come in to, um, and he wanted to bring his, uh, his crew with him. And Pontra pointed out that, look, I've spent all these years putting together this team and I've got a, a team of people who I trust, uh, who I know work well. Um, the, the, this rider would come in, he'd bring in all of his crew, have to sack all of these people I've spent years working with. And, uh, then he's only there for a year and then he moves up to the factory team and then you're left with no crew having lost both the the crew that Marquez bought with him, but also the crew that um, uh, uh, that you had had to sack to make way for him. And it's the same with Petronas. Petronas, um, uh, Wilco Zealand put together the best possible um, personnel package that they could when they were putting together this MoGP team. They would have to get rid of half, you know, basically they'd have to get rid of, you know, one side of the garage. Now, there's a chance that, uh, for example, Diego Gubellini might leave anyway um, uh, to go with uh, uh, to go with Fabio Quattararo when he moves up to the factory team. But he's not going to take all of his uh, all of his crew and all of his engineers and all of his mechanics. Um, so basically, Petronas would have to sacks a bunch of mechanics who they like trust and did and did a lot of work to try to recruit um uh it'd be two years of valentino rossi with all of his crew and all of his entourage uh and uh then when rossi retires a lot of rossi's uh, crew are also sort of you know 50s you know in their late 50s uh, early 60s they've been in the grand prix products since since the 1990s they've been there sort of 30 40 years so they are and they've made you know they've done quite well out of it financially. They're in a position to not have to uh, continue working if they don't want to. And I can imagine that when Valentino Rossi retires, a rider you've been with for twenty years, it's it becomes a natural point at which you think, do I want to continue doing this? Especially as some of them live on the other side of the world. They live in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, you might think about you know just jacking it in and um, uh, going off uh, back to your farm and, and having a nice quiet time of it, a bit like um, Jeremy Burgess has done. So, yeah, you risk losing a lot of staff and then having to go through the whole recruitment process again and you know, trying to find these really good uh, mechanics, uh, engineers, um, who you spend a lot of time trying to recruit once, uh, then have had to sack and then have to try and tent them back or find someone equal to replace them. So to me, that I think is, is the problem. The, the, the problem is between Valentino Rossi uh, and, and Patronus wanting Valentino Rossi to fit into their team. And this is a situation that has been forced on both Rossi and Patronus, really. It's not been a situation of, of either of their making. It was, um, the, this has happened because Yamaha decided that it was time to move on from Rossi and that they needed, if they wanted to keep Fabio Quartararo and Maverick Vinales, their riders for the future, uh, they needed to have those two in the factory team. Uh, and then they 
had to persuade Valentino to leave the the, the, the factory team somehow, and they promised him uh, a full factory. And so, you know, Yamaha are sort of stuck in the middle trying to figure out how to make this uh, this all work. So that, I think, has been the biggest problem. I uh, I mean, I saw today a new story about it should be fixed, or there should be an announcement at um, uh, Jerez, but then I was told about 10 days ago that um, there was likely to be a uh, an, uh, an announcement uh, this past weekend, but that hasn't uh, that hasn't happened either. So, I think it's uh, I think it's really really complicated, and there's going to be a lot of uh, compromises uh, to to be made. Uh, it's more about uh, you know the, the the politics and the logistics and all the rest of it. Okay, and speaking about money and uh, and Yamaha, Steve, going to you, uh, there's been some very, very big news in the World Superbike paddock uh, this week. Uh, Michael Vandermark announcing that he will be uh, severing his ties with Yamaha at the end of 2020. Um, I think uh, some news that uh, we were texting each other in uh, in our, our group chat yesterday caught us all a bit off guard, a bit off, um, caught us all by surprise. Um, what's, what's going on there and, um, and what's the situation with Michael? Well, I think when you look at it, it took us by surprise, but that was just because, I'll be honest, I haven't been uh, focusing on the rider market over the course of the lockdown. I've been uh, trying to do other things, and I was I was going to try and catch up with people whenever I go to the Catalan test next week. But uh, the Vandermark story, whenever I first saw it on Speed Week, I was immediately sending out a couple of texts to people saying, what do you, what do you think of this? What do you make of it? And um, the more that I was chatting to people, the more it just made perfect sense you know whether or not Vandermark does go to BMW and from what I've been told by various people it looks almost certain that it is BMW and you know fair play to Evo at Speed Week for being able to be to to have that story but it makes a lot of sense for Vandermark to leave it makes a lot of sense for BMW to hire him and a lot of it comes down to the fact that BMW have resources they have money they're not afraid of spending it they've shown that with uh, their hirings over the last couple of years whether it was Pete Benson to work with Marcus Reiterberger last year or Marcus Eschenberger to work with uh, Eugene Laverty this year they're not afraid of spending money and uh, Yamaha with the lockdown, are going to be one of the companies very much affected by the financial realities that we're going to face over the next year. Vandermark has a lot of expectations for what he'd want to be paid. He's finished third in the world. He's won world. He's won uh, world superbike races. He's a world supersport champion. He's won at Suzuka. He would expect that he'd be paid at least as well as his teammate. The top racks come in, and there's a lot of resources from. Yamaha Turkey that go into top rack as well. That was seen with uh, Keenan Safoglu's deal to to work with Yamaha in Turkey. And uh, that money gets spent on top rack. It's guaranteed for next year because his contract was already signed before the lockdown. Would Vandermark accept a lesser deal than his teammate? And then whenever you factor in as well that at uh, Suzuka, Vandermark Suzuka was always included in his Yamaha World Superbike contract. It wasn't a separate entity like it was for other riders. So if you were Alex Lowe's, for instance, you would have been signing a World Superbike contract with Crescent Racing and a Suzuka 8 Hours contract with Yamaha. And if that was the case, you'd be paid two different checks. Vandermark, on the other hand, was just signed for a Yamaha contract for World Superbikes and for Suzuka. Yamaha aren't racing at Suzuka this year, so suddenly the budget that would have been allocated to him for that contract is now gone. So, you know, just by by factor of that happening, he then would have lost out on money for this year as he would have seen it. So would he accept a lesser pay deal? 
for uh, for whenever he's got more experience, whenever he's expecting to win races this year, expecting to challenge for a championship. I don't think he would have. And I think that's what it would have come down to in a lot of ways. Dave is an honorary Dutchman, half Dutchman, I think we could say. Uh, were you surprised by uh, your, in inverted commas, countryman's decision? Uh, I was a little bit surprised, yeah. I mean... Um you do get used riders as um, as belonging to a particular brand. I mean, and also because uh, Yamaha Europe is based in uh, in at Schiphol near uh, near Amsterdam, and so there's a very strong Dutch connection there. I know, you know, whenever I speak to the Yamaha Europe people, they were always very very happy to have him as a rider. But I mean, Steve makes a perfectly good uh, a good point. Before he was always a Ten Carter rider, and yet he left Ten Carter and went off to, to to race for Yamaha. So yeah, it's easy to forget and you know if he wins a couple of races for BMW then in uh, and, and signs another contract then I think also Steve makes a really really good point about um, ego it's about ego a lot of it is about ego Michael Vandermark was always you know the the the, the hot young thing he was the big new name um, he was the the, the up and coming youngster who was going to uh, uh, take world superbikes by storm. He did that to a certain extent. Then all of a sudden, along comes top rack Rasgatli uh, Ogilu, uh, who is now the you know the the, the hot new young thing, um, very fast, uh, uh, proven to be extremely competitive. That is a little bit upsetting. But then when your factory rider to replace you as you know the 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 the, the hot new young thing. And that's going to be really quite um, uh, quite irritating. That's going that has got to upset uh, him. Um, ego is one of the biggest reasons that riders leave their factories. I mean, not when they're fired, but when they're um, when they decide to leave. It's almost always uh, for reasons of ego rather than anything else, uh, because they feel that their their factory hasn't uh, or their team hasn't treated them with the respect they feel they deserve. So uh, I suspect that this will be a big deal in Michael van der Mark's decision to, to leave. It seems like a lifetime ago, Steve, that uh, you were over in Phillip Island at the start of this season, uh, watching the first round of World Superbikes, and uh, obviously some memorable racing there, not least because Top Rank uh, scored his first victory for Yamaha, uh, his very first outing for the team. Um, do you think the results there and possibly... The reaction, maybe within the team or, or within management, um, do you think that maybe was playing on Michael's mind recently um, in his decision-making process? Yeah, Neil, like in Australia, we saw a lot of things that uh, came to the fore. We saw Toprak had a victory celebration at the ready that the whole team was involved in. And factors like that can play a big role in where a rider sees themselves with a team. For someone like Van der Mark that's the established rider at Yamaha, someone that has been the rider that he would have expected to lead the team, to suddenly come back and see all of his team celebrating a new rider on his debut um, like that, that has to have an effect on a rider. And I, I was talking to riders that weekend about that, and they all said the same thing to me. They all said that can't be easy to deal with. It's not something that any of them would have liked to have seen happen against them. So... That can play a role. The fact that we haven't had a race for four months means that Vandermark's, you know, he hasn't had any chance to be able to show that he's the man at Yamaha. He's the one that they should be that they should be backing. So that can play a role in it as well. And then, like I said, getting paid is important. And um, all those factors rolled into one 
can mean that uh, it's very easy for a rider to make the decision to leave. And I think by the time we get back to racing, Vandermark's still going to be able to win races this year for Yamaha. But it's going to be interesting to see exactly how, how the rest of the season plays out. So, uh, as you say, Steve, it, it does look increasingly likely that uh, Michael will be signing for uh, BMW in 2021. Um, where does that leave the, the, the riders' market in the World Superbike Championship? I mean, obviously, BMW have Tom Sykes and Eugene Laverty for this year. One of those guys is going to have to make way. Uh, what will Yamaha do to replace uh, Vandermark? Will they promote from within? They've obviously got uh, pretty handy riders in their satellite World Superbike Squad, they've also got Cameron Bobier uh, doing the business over in Moto America. Um, how do you see um, future events panning out with regards to rider signings? Well, I think Loris Baz is the rider that makes the most sense for Yamaha to bring in to the factory team. He knows the bike from racing it for Tankade for a year. He's still young. He's only 27, so he's you know the same age as Vandermark. He's a little bit younger than Vandermark, actually. And uh, I think he'd make a lot of sense. I think... Yamaha will find it appealing to look at uh, some of their younger riders, whether that's at the GRT team with Karakasulo and uh, Gerloff. But both of those are far from a finished article and they'd both be a big risk to to put onto the factory bike. I think maybe if we had had half a season up until now, we'd be able to look at Gerloff in particular in a slightly different light. We don't have an awful lot of data on him because we've only looked at him in Moto America and then Phillip Island. I think if you were to look at Moto America... Uh, Cameron Bobia is obviously the rider that jumps off the page. He's been with Yamaha for a long time. He's ridden the OR1 since 2014. He's won a lot of races, won a lot of championships. But um, Bobia brings with him some risk as well because how good is the Moto America Championship? And the problem for Bobia is he's been utterly dominant so far this season. They've had four races. He won three by huge margins and crashed out of the fourth while leading the race by a couple of seconds so is Cameron Bobier that good or is Moto America just lacking a little bit of, of top line talent and top line teams and that's a big challenge for him to overcome Cameron Bobier is very highly regarded he's very highly rated by a lot of people in America but until he's actually willing to come across to race in the world championship there's always going to be a question mark about just how good he is and I'd love to see him come over. I think it would be great for great for World Superbikes. It'd be great for Bobier if he came over and tested himself. But uh, I also wouldn't be be holding my breath for him to to come over for for that ride. I think Yamaha could look for you know riders in the Moto Two class that aren't going to get a Moto GP shot. Maybe they'll uh, they'll try and bring someone across that uh, could be a young rider to bring through for the next few years. If you look at the Moto2 field, like Neil, you'd know yourself a lot better than me, but there's a lot of riders there that aren't going to get a MotoGP chance, but may be interested in uh, having a, a World Superbike ride and, and the chance to win a championship. And I think that could be something that uh, Yamaha could explore. But uh, I think Baz is the name that you're going to see linked with this an awful lot because he's the right age, he's got tons of experience, and he knows the bike. And with BMW, are they likely to move on Eugene or Sykes, do you think? Well, that's going to be the interesting one. And it's one that all the way through the winter, anyone that's been looking at BMW objectively would have said, well, BMW are going to make a decision between Sykes and Laverty after this year. If one rider outperforms the other, that's more than likely going to be the end of their World Superbike career. And now that decision is being made in a very truncated time frame, where instead of having half a season to have 
to have assessed Laverty, for instance, they're now basing that on winter tests and Phillip Island. So the next couple of rounds in Hareth and Portimao are going to be really important for BMW to make their decision on who they want to keep. I know that BMW have rated Laverty's feedback very highly. He's very in tune with the electronics of a bike, and that's useful. But uh, whether or not they'll view that uh, Tom Sykes and his... Like at the end of the day, Tom Sykes is the is still arguably the fastest rider in World Superbikes in terms of a single lap time, and uh, that's obviously very important for BMW to to get pole positions. And uh, with Tom, you you do always get that opportunity to start on the on the pole, and that's obviously important for a marketing perspective as well. But either Sykes or Laverty are, are both still very good riders that uh, would warrant keeping their ride. But I also can't fault BMW if they did hire Vandermark because he's younger than them. He's won races more recently than them. And, you know, Vandermark has been highly regarded as that future star of World Superbikes for a very long time. And now he's he's at that point of his career where he's able to fulfill that promise. Interesting times ahead in the World Superbike Championship. Steve, just remind us, when are we uh, seeing the Superbike Championship kick off? Uh, the week after the Hareth Grand Prix, so the last weekend of July, we'll start off with Friday practice and then 1st and 2nd of August we'll be back racing. And then a week later we, we go to Portimao for the next round of the championship. So once it starts up again, it uh, really does start uh, quick and fast. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, Today we're recording on the 1st of July. It's great to be able to say that we're going racing again this month after, uh, well, nearly uh, four months of uh, of absence of um, top-line motorcycle racing. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of our discussion, this edition of the uh, the Paddock Pass podcast. We hope that you've, uh, or that we have covered uh, everything that you wanted to hear regarding rider movements, rider signings, and the riders' market ahead of 2021. Uh, we'll be back again next week uh, with a preview of uh, the first MotoGP race. How exciting is that, to be able to say? And if there's anything else that you would like us to discuss on the show, give us some feedback either on Twitter uh, or on uh, your Apple listening device um, because those reviews basically help us uh, or help other users uh, find our show. Thank you very much to my guest today, Mr. David Emmett. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Neil. And thank you as well, Mr. Stephen English. Yeah, thanks very much, Neil. It's always fun to have a chat. Yep, always a pleasure to have both you guys on the show. And dear listener, if you could follow us on our social media channels, facebook.com forward slash podcast, twitter at paddockpasspod, and uh, yeah, Patreon as well. You can donate as little as $3 a month uh, to our Patreon pages to keep us basically up and going through these uh, tough and testing times that are uh, engulfing the world at the moment. So until next week, when we have another episode, see you soon.